Canto 14 begins with a moment of real tenderness when Dante gathers up the leaves that have fallen from the tree that's now the body of the chap who had committed suicide. Remember, some had shaken from his boughs and in a moment of caring for his body, which he hadn't done before, he laments the loss of the leaves and worries where they've fallen to. And so Dante, full of compassion in this moment, gathers them together and places them under the tree. It's a, an interesting opening to Canto 14 that then immediately switches because they're now moving into the third round of this circle of hell. Um, the first round, as you remember, was the violence against others, the boiling river of blood. Then they had violence against self in this particular kind of suicide. And then now they're beginning to see the third round, a different kind of violence. Um, and this is going to be violence against God in God's self, um, the most profound sort. And it immediately invokes a new dread in Dante. You know, having had that moment of care and compassion, he, as it were, turns from the trees and sees a new sight before him. Um, they're on a boundary, it says, and they must walk this boundary very carefully. Um, it's partly for their own immediate protection, as we'll see, but there's also this sense of being careful where you tread, be careful where your emotions and affections lead you in hell, because even kind emotions can lead you astray. What Dante sees as he calls to God with the dread and fear of what must unfold because of human actions and human hearts is a vast expanse of burning sand. Um, it's in very marked contrast to this vegetation that they've seen in the previous round. Now, he says, no roots can take hold here. And he notices that falling on the sand are flames of fire, like a kind of rain, and they fall and burn the poor souls trapped in this domain, in this mental state. Um, he notices that there are three kinds of um, position that these souls are adopting, and these are going to mark the next three sorts of people we meet. The first sort who we're going to meet first are laid flat on the sand, um, then some are more sitting up, and then the final sort, who are actually the most numerous, um, are wandering and meandering and running across the sand. These are three types of torment we're going to encounter now. But it's significant that though he's full of dread um, and wondering about God's justice, what this all amounts to, he keeps his mind about him in this canto. It's one of the periods in hell where he does do that. And it's signalled um, in a new way, in fact, because Dante, the poet, describes um, the falling flames from the sky hitting the sparking and burning sand. Um, by reference to Alexander the Great, um, Dante recalls a letter that supposedly was written by Alexander to Aristotle, where Alexander describes a scene like this that they encountered as they journeyed further and further into the Hindu Kush. Now, that letter is disputed, um, but nonetheless, what it does for us now is invokes again the name of Alexander, who we've just met, actually, in the River of Boiling Blood. And so the suggestion is that Dante is beginning to join more dots here. 
he's not just, as it were, immersed in one scene at a time and only barely managing to kind of keep his mind, if he does, with what he's encountering and trying to make sense of. He's now beginning just to make the first steps towards linking between cantos, beginning, you might see, to see hell more in the round. And I think that's why the name of Alexander is invoked here. And in fact, this canto has a kind of majesty, I think, even whilst it has the pain and the torment. And Dante begins to suggest that actually what his poem is about is not about the immediate corruption of medieval Christianity, not just about the immediate failings of individual souls. It's not even about Christianity and how that's understood, but maybe even reaching towards the horizons of what his Christianity can teach him and looking beyond. Um, he's mentioning Alexander the Great. He's mentioning linking up the cantos. There's a sense of pushing at the boundaries of his knowledge as he pushes at the boundaries of the cantos, you might say. And very extraordinary images are going to appear further down the line. But first of all, let's consider what he immediately encounters now on the burning sand. He first sees a particular soul lying flat on the ground, so not one of the ones crouched, not one of the ones wandering. We'll meet them later. He's lying flat on the ground, and he seems untormented, in fact, by the flames that are falling upon him. And he turns to Virgil and says, you know, can you help me understand this person who seems to be untormented? And he's trusting Virgil's word, although there is a hint of Virgil's failure in the past, because Dante also says, though I'm remembering what happened before the walls of Dis, when Virgil couldn't open the gates. So, you know, there's a sense of fear and trembling here, as well as wonder and the beginnings of some sense of majesty. Before Virgil can even answer Dante, the soul speaks out for himself. It turns out that he's a character called Caponeus, who came to the aid of Polynices, who was one of the sons of Oedipus, by assaulting Thebes. And he speaks out immediately, full of confidence, but with a kind of vain glory as well. And he says, as I was when I was alive, so I am now dead. And he curses Jupiter. He says, hurl all the thunderbolts you might want to at me, Jupiter. They will not touch me. So this is a chap who is blaspheming the old gods, interestingly, but in such a way that his rage, um, as it were, is more powerful, sort of screens out even what it seems that Jupiter stroke the Christian god is hurling at him now. And it's, it's it, again, it sort of captures the profundity of where this soul, where these blasphemers um, find themselves now. Um, that it's not just that they've, they've, as it were, sort of sworn against God, and that would be too trivial a thing. Why would God bother with that? But what their swearing against God has done has so inflated their sense of themselves in the rage against the deity that they've trapped themselves in this circle of hell. They can't move. And this is signalled by Caponeus saying right from the get-go, as I was in life, so I am now. He says that in a proud way, but doesn't realise that that's precisely what traps him. 
And Virgil turns to Capaneus really very, very strongly and um, uh, curses him back and says, explains then to Dante um, what Capaneus's great sin is, um, that as he was so proud in life, so he is now. But Virgil points out that it's a, using a rather nice expression. He says, yes, um, his ornamental words pierce his chest. In other words, what he's saying actually stabs him more profoundly than even um, the flames falling at him from Jupiter, from God. Um, it's a sort of a moment where one of the great sinners of hell, um, a bit like Farinata, um, uh, we've mentioned before, these are the characters whose self-involvement um, seems to eclipse um, their torment in hell, but actually it turns out their self-involvement is their torment. Caponeus is the same as this, and Virgil explains that to Dante. Um, it's also really interesting that Virgil comes on so strongly against Caponeus. This is often remarked on by the commentators, and it says even in the canto itself, um, that Dante notices Virgil replying more strongly than he had done heretofore against the sinner. And I wonder about this. I, I think this actually is a moment where Virgil is projecting, um, to use the modern psychodynamic term. And the reason is that Caponeus is remembered for having besieged and stormed Thebes, broken down the walls of Thebes, Whereas, of course, it's already been mentioned that Virgil didn't manage to storm the walls of Dis, um, which Dante has reminded him. And so Virgil, you might imagine, is himself rather caught up and agitated um, at this moment and projects out his own failure onto Caponeus and says, look, you're the one that's failed. Can't you even see that? Um, it's a mechanism of projection where something that's intolerable inside us, we project onto or try and locate in someone else who is suitably around. Um, one of the subtleties of the interactions that Dante is supremely alert to in hell, inviting us always to understand the inner dynamics that are going on, as well as just the surface appearances, because it's the inner dynamics that give us the real wisdom. That inner subtlety also explains the true meaning of blasphemy, which you know, as I say, it's not really just cursing God. Why would God curse? But the truth is that when you curse God, you unwittingly curse yourself, the divine source of your life. And that's why it so profoundly cuts you off from divine life. And in Caponeus's case, leads him to hell. You know, when you meet these characters like Farinata, like Caponeus, you wonder if actually they're the individuals who are at most risk of being in hell for all eternity. Because whilst it seems that they're not suffering according to hell's torments, they are suffering more profoundly by their own torments. And that, in a way, leads them even more isolated and untouchable, unreachable by divine grace. It's sort of extra thought that these deeper cantos start to throw up in your mind. It's part of the wisdom that the descent yields that perhaps you wouldn't really grasp otherwise, just how profoundly um, these distresses go. And this is the moment in the canto after they've encountered Caponeus when I think it opens up um, really quite surprisingly. 
It happens because they come across a stream. Um, it's an infernal stream, not a refreshing stream. It flows red. And Dante's really surprised by it, um, partly because it's cutting across the circles, not moving around the circles in a circular form as they'd encountered before. Um, so it seems an unnatural colour doing an unnatural thing. And Dante's really curious about this. Um, he wanders and he desires to know what it means. So he's in a good state of mind, you know, wandering and desiring and being able to think and asking for help from Virgil. These are all the good virtues that he needs to navigate away successfully through hell. And Virgil does indeed say to him, this is a wonder that we whose extent we haven't really encountered before yet in, in the hell. And he explains to Dante what it's about. And he does so by describing um, uh, a, a sort of cosmic myth almost. And what he tells Dante is that the stream has its source in an old man who's trapped beneath the volcano of Crete, which is called Ida. And this old man is a kind of towering statuesque figure. His head is made of gold, his chest and arms and torso are made of silver. But as Virgil describes it more, he says that the gold and the silver is cracked and out from it flows kind of corrupt, decaying water. And then as you look further down this figure, you realise that his feet are made of terracotta. And in particular, he's leaning on his right foot, which is crumbling from this clay sort of stone. And so I think this is an image of um, decay, clearly. Um, not, I don't think, just the decay of the church, but it's a kind of civilizational decay. And that, I think, is hinted because Virgil also describes how this figure stares at Rome and has his back to Egypt. If you think of Crete, it's halfway between Egypt and Rome. And this is a word as a figure who was turned from the old civilization of Egypt, is now looking at the new civilization of Rome. It's a civilization that he describes seeing to him as if a mirror within which he therefore sees himself. So it's a mirror where he becomes conscious of himself. Rome, as it were, has given him a new lease of life, this old man of Crete, at one point, from when he turned from the old awareness associated with the ancient, ancient civilization of Egypt to the new Christian civilization located in Rome. But it's now beginning to fail him too, hence his cracked body. The mirror is not, as it were, keeping him as alert. Um, the culture is not feeding his mind. It's not showing him the truths of the divine quite so much anymore. And he's, as it were, leaning on the least valuable part of himself, on his terracotta foot. It's a wonderful metaphor, a wonderful simile for what happens when civilizations begin to become exhausted. They lose touch with their source. They start to lean actually on their least valuable parts and confusing them from the most valuable um, because they can't see, you might say, the true value um, that was their original founding, their original source. So this is a kind of quite a sophisticated but very immense kind of image where Dante is beginning to critique 
um, what's happening to Roman Christianity, but also beginning to see how the problems of Christianity have an even wider context, much as the old civilization of Egypt fell, so Christianity might fall too, it's suggested. And it's also intimated in as much as we've already in this canto had an explicit reference to the pagan gods of Rome before Christianity took over. You remember that Capaneus curses Jupiter. Now, at one level, he curses Jupiter in his blindness. He hasn't even been aware that there's a new dispensation that's unfolded um, across Rome, across the face of the earth. But I think this is also intimating in Dante's mind um, that when Christianity was once an extension, a new evolution, a new expansion um, of the old Roman gods into the Christian understanding of things, it too, the new understanding, it too can reach a kind of decay, a kind of degeneracy, where the new dispensation starts to crack and people start to lean on the least valuable parts of it. So we're getting a sense that um, this, in a way, is what blasphemy might be about in its kind of widest possible sense. It's not just about individuals cursing God, why would care? It's not just about individuals cursing the source of their life and so cutting themselves off from that source. It's also about cultures and civilizations doing the same, that they as well can commit blasphemy, lean on the most sort of porous, um, decaying, least valuable, most vulnerable and fragile parts of themselves because they have become cut off from their divine source. Um, there's, you might say these days, they rely purely on the material realm and barely even know there's a spiritual realm that's the wellspring of life itself. So to bring us back into where they are in hell, they've encountered this stream which is flowing red, flowing in an unnatural way as well. And it's the stream that takes them in their imagination to the old man of Crete, um, leaning on his crumbling terracotta foot, that presents a picture of, um, of true sort of dread and wonder um, that Dante begins to grasp. I think of him in this canto with bringing together Jupiter and the Christian deity, seeing Alexander the Great. Um, he's beginning to wonder, what is this descent really about? You know, how far is it going to take me? This is not just about the torment that souls can end up in unwittingly um, or deliberately now in the case of Capaneus. Um, this somehow is going to have meaning for the whole of Christianity. But there's also these signs of hope threaded throughout this canto. Um, remember, the descent and the ascent are one and the same. We've had the gathering of the leaves at the beginning of the canto in a gesture of personal concern and compassion. Another sign of hope, which you might have missed um, unless you were alert to it, was that when Dante describes the scene that meets them as like the scene that had met Alexander when he travelled across the Hindu Kush, the sign of flames falling from heaven and burning sands. He also describes, he also invokes the figure of Cato. Um, he says that this was much as Cato um, encountered when he marched across the Libyan desert, a famous story from Roman history. 
Now, what's really interesting about Cato is that Cato commits suicide, but we also know that we're going to meet Cato much later on. In fact, not even in hell itself. We're going to meet Cato in purgatory. So this is starting to play with things, um, you know, really quite substantially now. We've just come out of the wood of the suicides. Cato's name is mentioned. He committed suicide in Roman history. And yet, the alert reader, Dante the poet, also knows that we're going to meet Cato in purgatory. So everything is being turned upside down as hope finds itself threaded throughout the canto. And then there's a third sign of hope as well, because when, Dan when Virgil describes um, the red stream, um, they also talk about the rivers of hell. Um, some of them they've crossed. I remember the river of boiling blood they just crossed. Um, they're going to meet the most dreadful um, river right in the deepest pit of hell. Um, at the furthest reach from God. But another river is named in this moment as well. Um, this is the River Lethe. And in fact, they're not going to come to the River Lethe until they're on the borders between purgatory and paradise. So this name mentioned in this infernal place is like another kind of moment of hope, almost um, an echo of refreshment, even as they're amidst the burning sands. So. The imagery of this, this canto is, is really complex. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's about blasphemy 101, cursing God. That doesn't take you very far, and you know, God doesn't even care, I don't suppose. But blasphemy really matters with the slightly deeper inner insight, because if you curse God, you risk cursing your own self, in that you curse your divine source, the wellspring of your life itself, which you can connect with. This isn't just a personal problem, it can happen to civilizations too. And Dante's beginning to wonder whether the corruption of Christianity he sees around him is a, another repeat of the cycle of civilizational decay that he sees in the broadest expanse of, um, of, of human history, uh, notably the decline of Egypt and the decline of the paganism in Rome. That's what this journey is beginning to show him. And yet at the same time, there's these little sort of moments, these little half sunbeams amidst the falling flames of hope, with the reference to Cato they're going to meet later, with the gathering of the leaves in a, in a moment of compassion, um, and now with um, the invocation of what's going to be the most refreshing river of all, Valethi. But the canto ends again with an invocation of fear and warning. It's as if it says, don't get cocky just because you think you're beginning to see these divine sights yourself, just because you think your own piety is keeping you on this narrow path, on this boundary between these dangerous zones. You've got to be constantly careful that you don't get caught up in pride, even as your spiritual sight seems like it's beginning to reach further. And so the canto ends with Virgil turning to Dante and saying, we're going to keep walking now. We're going to walk along the banks of the red stream, because, as you remember, it flows unnaturally in hell. It cuts across the sand. Um, Virgil says to Dante, keep close to the banks. Don't tread on the burning sand. You're at risk. Um, this is the realism of the inferno. But if you keep close to me, keep on this boundary, then we'll be able to cross the sand 
and move to what we must see next.